And a happy birthday today to Dallas Roars of Clive. Dallas, you're our only birthday for today. Happy birthday to you. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who's listening in order to keep our services free. Now, here's Linda with our obituaries. Thomas F. Biller of Clive peacefully entered God's kingdom on Monday, November 13th, surrounded by his family and embraced by the love of Christ. Tom was born in Waterloo to Laverne and Rose Biller on August 3rd, 1932. Tom graduated from St. Mary's Catholic High School in Waterloo, where he was crowned homecoming king and was a three-sport letter winner. After high school, he played semi-pro football for the Waterloo Wildcats before serving two years in the U.S. Army during the Korean War. Upon returning home, he married his high school sweetheart, Helen Spurlock, who he affectionately referred to as his Lil Petunia. While building houses for others all day as a carpenter, he spent evenings and weekends building his own dream home where he and Helen began raising their family, eventually welcoming seven children. Their Catholic faith was at the forefront of their family's traditions. He spent many successful years moving up through the ranks within the millwork industry, first in sales, then as a branch manager for three different Rock Island millwork manufacturing plants in Iowa and North Carolina. He eventually became a partner at a plant in his hometown of Waterloo. With hard work and a desire to return to the open road, Tom started Biller & Associates, a manufacturer's sales rep company where he was trusted and admired by the many companies across the United States who relied on his abundant knowledge of the industry. Tom and Helen enjoyed an active retirement, dividing their time between their townhome in Sun City, their lake home on Lake Panorama, and their home base in Urbandale, where they loved the constant activity of grandkids coming and going to use their backyard pool. Tom had a lifelong love of the outdoors, and he also always found time for hunting or fishing trips to northern Minnesota or Canada. Imagine Helen's reaction when he came home and told her he had a trophy bear rug being prepared at the taxidermist. Tom was preceded in death by his parents, his wife Helen of 59 years, brother Don, and sister Mary Lou. He is survived by his seven children, Scott, partner Sherry Biller of Urbandale, Dan, partner Helen Biller of Olathe, Kansas, Ben, partner Vicki Biller of Overland Park, Kansas, Jenny, partner Deacon Rick Condon of Urbandale, Andy, partner Michelle Biller of Council Bluffs, Angie, partner John Alberg of Calamus, Iowa, 
and Mary Helen Biller of Clive and his brother Jack Biller of Woodbury, Minnesota. He's also survived by 17 grandchildren and 26 great-grandchildren, as well as his friend and companion of eight years, Bev Fontanini. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be directed to the Spina Bifida Association of Iowa, 8525 Douglas Avenue, Suite 39, in Urbandale, 50322. Online condolences are welcome at islescares.com. Sharon E. Myers, Graveside Services for Sharon of Indianola, who passed away Monday, November 13th, will be held 2 p.m. Monday, November 20th in the Indianola IOOF Memorial Garden Cemetery. Friends and family will gather at the Overton Funeral Home from 1 to 1.45 Monday prior to services. Memorials in her memory may be given to the Annette Nature Center or St. Croix Hospice. You can sign an online condolence at OvertonFunerals.com. Roger Lyle Bacon, 77, of Des Moines, passed away November 7th at the University of Nebraska Medical Center after a short illness. Service will be held Saturday, November 18th at Grace Church, 4200 East 25th Street in Des Moines. Family will greet friends from 9 to 11 a.m. with the funeral beginning at 11 a.m. You can visit hamiltonsfuneralhome.com for a full obituary. Our last one from Clive. Marvin Lee Kraus of Clive passed away November 13th at the age of 90 from complications related to Parkinson's disease at Silvercrest of Woodlands Creek. Visitation will be 9 to 10 a.m. Saturday, November 18th at Isles Westover Chapel Funeral Service. Wait. I'm sorry, at Isles Westover Chapel. Funeral service will follow at 10 a.m. with entombment following at Rest Haven Mausoleum. And now we'll return to the national and world stories that are contained in the front page section of the register, beginning with this one. Congress avoids a shutdown and tests decorum. It was a day befitting of a 13% approval rating. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill engaged in heated verbal exchanges and startling physical aggressions as Americans faced serious challenges at home and abroad. In a dizzying day that saw House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican of Louisiana, cobble together a bipartisan plan to pay the country's bills and avoid a government shutdown before the Friday deadline, his predecessor, Representative Kevin McCarthy, a Republican of California, was accused of sucker-punching a rival. Tensions in the House on Tuesday also boiled over during an oversight hearing where a powerful committee chairman lashed out about how a member looked like a smurf. Things were not more collegial on the Senate side either, where Senate Mark Wayne, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, a Republican of Oklahoma, stood up and challenged a union leader to a fight during a committee hearing. 
Outside the halls of Congress, there were also fireworks as thousands of pro-Israel demonstrators marched on the National Mall to denounce anti-Semitism, calls for a ceasefire, and demand an immediate release of hostages held in Gaza. Here's a rundown of that wild day in Washington. The first one, why did you elbow me in the back, Kevin? That's a quote. If you need a reminder of the bad blood that remains between some House Republicans over McCarthy's removal, then this bizarre moment is a good one. Representative Tim Burchett, a Republican of Tennessee, alleged the California Republican elbowed him while passing by with his security detail during an interview with NPR on Tuesday following closed-door GOP conference meeting. Why did you elbow me in the back, Kevin? Burchett could be heard saying in the audio interview. Hey, Kevin, you got any guts? Jerk. That's an end of the quote from Mr. Burchett. Burchett said the shot to his kidneys was a sucker punch and claimed it was purposeful over his October vote. McCarthy, however, denied everything when reporters caught up with him. That's not who I am, he said. Here's the second incident. What is a smurf? Comer blasts Democratic critic. Oversight and Accountability Chairman James Comer, a Republican of Kentucky, is continuing to dig into President Joe Biden's family finances as part of the GOP's impeachment inquiry. Just this month, the GOP lawmaker raised the stakes by issuing several major subpoenas, including for Hunter Biden, the president's son, and James Biden, the president's brother. But Democrats are swinging back at the committee's leader in defense of the president, specifically calling attention to a Daily Beast report that Comer and his own brother have engaged in multiple land swaps in years. It has come out in the public that you also do business with your brother with potential loans, represented Jared Moskowitz, a Democrat of Florida, said during a Tuesday hearing. In a profanity-laced rebuttal, Comer denied the report, saying he has not given his brother one penny before directing his comments to Moskowitz's blue suit and tie. You look like a smurf here, just going around with all this stuff, Comer said. Here's the next one. A senator challenges Teamsters boss by saying, stand your butt up. George Washington once said, according to the Senate's website, how the Senate was created to cool the House legislation, similar to how a saucer was used to temper his tea. But the upper chamber was just as rowdy on Tuesday as Mullen invited International Brotherhood of Teamsters President Sean O'Brien to have a fistfight during a committee hearing. Mullen, a former mixed martial arts fighter, and O'Brien had a nasty exchange earlier this year, and the GOP lawmaker called out how the union boss talked tough online after that argument. You want to do it now, Mullins asked. Stand your butt up then, he said. O'Brien, a fourth-generation teamster, replied, You stand your butt up, big guy. That's a quote. Senator Bernie Sanders, an independent of Vermont, banged his gavel and demanded both of them zip it before bemoaning how voters have enough contempt for Congress. That's a a quote from Mr. Sanders. And the final section, government shutdown delayed for now. Amid the nasty exchanges and startling confrontations, Congress did get one thing accomplished. It voted to avoid a shutdown. 
The bipartisan deal represents Johnson's first major achievement as Speaker, using an unusual approach of a laddered continuing resolution, which pushes the fight to the next year. Under the two-tiered plan, some funding would expire on January 19, and the rest would, would run out on February 2nd, which the Speaker hopes will force the House and the Senate to negotiate on the dozen appropriation measures. But Democrats called the idea, well, some Democrats called the idea gimmicky. The bill contained no spending, spending cuts, however, which infuriated hardline conservatives while winning over many Democrats who saved Johnson by pushing it through. In all, 209 Democrats joined 127 Republicans to approve the stopgap funding bill. Two Democrats and 93 lawmakers, GOP lawmakers, opposed it. The spending bill is the same sort of bipartisan deal that ended up being McCarthy's demise. Senate committee moves to end Tuberville blockade. The Senate has had enough of Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville nine-month-long blockade of military nominations and promotions over the Pentagon's abortion travel policy, but they haven't yet agreed on how to fix it. The Democrat-led Senate Rules Committee voted 9-7 to along party lines on Tuesday to change a rule Tuberville has used to single-handedly block more than 360 nominations and promotions since February. Under the proposed rule, the Senate would temporarily be allowed to approve promotions in a group with a simple majority vote clearing the path for bulk approval of the nonpartisan nominees. But it must get at least 60 votes on the floor to go into effect, and it's unclear there will be enough Republican votes to advance it. Republicans on the Rules Committee blamed the problem primarily on the Biden administration policy and argued that the proposal isn't narrow enough. Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska, the top Republican on the committee, called it a political maneuver that would undermine the Senate's long-standing tradition of rights for the minority party. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, condemned Tuberville's blockade as dangerous and indicated he may be willing to support the plan in the future if another option doesn't work, but said any solution must preserve our substantive opposition to the Biden administration's atrocious policy. Tuberville has been holding up the promotions to protest a Department of Defense policy issued last year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade that gives service members time off and pays for travel necessary to receive abortions. The decision created a patchwork of abortion laws across the country, which could create additional cost and time constraints for service members stationed in more restrictive states who are seeking an abortion. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that would make it difficult to recruit and retain qualified troops and implemented the policy to combat that. 
Both Democrats and Republicans have complained for months that the blockade is impacting military readiness. Rules Committee Chair Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, said there will likely be 650 military leadership positions vacant by the end of the year if the holds aren't lifted. It's hurting the morale of our troops, and it's causing major disruptions in the lives of our military families who have already sacrificed so much, she said. Those frustrations boiled over two weeks ago when conflict in Gaza and a Marine Corps leader's medical emergency prompted multiple GOP senators to publicly beg him to release the hold. Many of his peers have been trying to convince him to express his opposition to the policy another way. Tuberville's ability to block the service member advancements is a numbers game. Any senator can delay nominations or legislation, but majority leadership typically bypasses it by holding votes to sidestep the hold. Trump requests a mistrial in a New York fraud case citing bias. Former President Donald Trump requested a mistrial in a high-stakes New York civil fraud case that could cost the GOP frontrunner $250 million and strip him of his ability to do business in the state, decrying what he called the judge's ample bias and a law clerk's co-judging. Given the demonstrable partisan bias present on the bench at the trial, the only way to maintain public confidence in a truly independent and impartial judiciary and the rule of law is to bring these proceedings to an immediate halt, Trump and several co-defendants said on Wednesday. The former president, his two oldest sons, and several other people and entities tied to the Trump business world are fighting a lawsuit by State Attorney General Letitia James that seeks hundreds of millions of dollars in penalties and to take away different avenues for Trump to conduct business in the state. Judge Arthur Ngoron ruled in September that Trump had fraudulently inflated the value of his assets and that some entities will lose their state business certificates. The ongoing trial is focused on further allegations, including that the defendants issued false financial statements and committed insurance fraud, as well as the possible extent of financial damages in the case. Trump himself has attacked the judge on social media as what he calls a disgrace to the legal profession. In explosive testimony earlier this month, Trump railed against Angoron's September ruling. Quoting here from Trump's uh, social media posting, he called me a fraud and he didn't know anything about me, the former president said from the witness stand rather, rather than his uh, social media product. Excuse me. The new filings on Trump's behalf target several instances that the defense says show actual bias or the appearance of bias by Ngoron. The Trump team said Ngoron acted in what it called beyond the pale by posting links that it said disparaged Trump and members of the defense to his high school alumni newsletter on several occasions between 2020 and 2022. The Trump team expressed special indignation over Ngoron's main law clerk, Allison Greenfield, and Ngoron's prohibition against parties and lawyers in the case publicly commenting on court staff.
The judge said his chambers had received what it called hundreds of harassing and threatening phone calls, voicemails, emails, letters, and packages since the trial began, and said the need to protect his staff from threats and physical harm outweighed the free speech rights of the defendants and their lawyers to comment on courtroom personnel. After an engage with the defense after an exchange with the defense team in court earlier this month, Ngoron specifically said the defense would not violate the gag order by making a written motion raising the issue in support of a mistrial. Ngoron instituted the gag order after Trump attacked Greenfield in social media posts, including one falsely describing her as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. Trump was twice fined for violating the order, and the judge expanded it to include the former president's attorneys. Mm-hmm. She meets with Biden as talks open. Planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed. This from Woodside, California. U.S. President Joe Biden and China's Xi Jinping plunged into their first face-to-face meeting in more than a year Wednesday, pledging to work to stabilize fraught relations in talks with far-reaching implications for a world grappling with economic cross-currents and wars in the Middle East and Europe. Planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed, she told Biden. The U.S. president told she, I think it's paramount that you and I understand each other clearly, leader to leader, with no misconceptions or miscommunications. We have to ensure competition does not veer into conflict. The two warmly shook hands as they met and made a red carpet entrance to a bucolic Northern California estate for what was expected to be hours of work on detangling a multitude of tensions. Chi, speaking through a translator, said the relationship between China and the U.S. has never been smooth, but has kept moving forward. For two large countries like China and the United States, turning their back on each other is not an option, he said. More pointedly, he also suggested it was not up to the U.S. to dictate how the Chinese manage their affairs, saying it is unrealistic for one side to remodel the other, and conflict and confrontation has unbearable consequences for both sides. Since the two leaders last met, already difficult relations have been further strained by the U.S. downing of a Chinese spy balloon that had traveled the continental U.S. and by differences on the self-ruled island of Taiwan. China's hacking of a Biden official's emails and other incidents. Biden was expected to let Xi know that he would like China to use its sway over Iran to make clear that Tehran or its proxies should not take action that could lead to expansion of the Israel-Hamas war. The Biden administration sees the Chinese, a big buyer of Iranian oil, as having considerable leverage with Iran, which is a major backer of Hamas. 
Ahead of Wednesday's meeting, senior White House officials said Biden would walk away with more concrete results than the leader's last talks in November 2022 in Bali, Indo in Bali Indonesia, on the sidelines of the Group tw of 20 summit. There will be agreements from China to help stop the flow of chemicals used in the production of illicit fentanyl and to revive communications between the militaries, increasingly important as incidents between the two nations, ships, and aircraft have spiked. Biden on Tuesday billed the meeting as a chance to get Washington and Beijing back on a normal course corresponding once again. But White House National Council spokesman John Kirby said Biden was not going to be afraid to confront where confrontation is needed on issues where we don't see eye to eye. We're also not going to be afraid, nor should we be afraid, as a confident nation to engage in diplomacy on ways which we can cooperate with China, on climate change, for instance, and clean energy technology, Kirby said. Biden is focused on fierce economic competition and keeping open lines of communication to prevent misunderstandings that could lead to direct conflict. While he was expected to defend U.S. expansion of export controls on semiconductor chips, he also was to assure Xi that the U.S. is not trying to wage economic war with Beijing amid continuing signs that China's economy is struggling to recover from the disruptions of the pandemic. She, meanwhile, was looking for assurances from Biden that the U.S. will not support Taiwan, Taiwan independence, start a new Cold War, or suppress China's economic growth. He was also keen to show the U.S. that China is still a good place to invest. Even before their meeting, there were some signs of a thaw. The State Department on Tuesday announced that the U.S. and China, two of the world's biggest polluters, have agreed to pursue efforts to triple renewable energy capacity globally by 2030 through wind, solar, and other renewables. Biden and Xi are in California for the annual Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, but they met one-on-one -on -one at Filoli Estate, a country house and museum about 25 miles south of San Francisco. The APEC summit events already have attracted considerable demonstrations, and more were expected, including protests against Xi and against multinational corporations focused on profits. <clears throat> In the hours before the meeting, White House officials said Biden was coming into the talks bolstered by signs the U.S. economy is in a stronger position than China's and that the U.S. is building stronger alliances throughout the Pacific. The U.S. president, speaking at a campaign fundraiser on Tuesday evening, pointed to his upcoming meeting as an example of how reestablished American leadership in the world is taking hold. 
As for China, the president told donors it has real problems. The International Monetary Fund recently cut forecasts for China, predicting economic growth of 5% this year and 4.2% in 2024, down slightly from previous forecasts. Last month, Beijing released economic data that showed prices falling due to slack demand from consumers and businesses. Biden, meanwhile, has taken pride in proving wrong, in proving wrong economists who predicted that millions of layoffs and a recession might be needed to bring down inflation in the U.S., the Labor Department said Tuesday that consumer prices rose at an annual pace of 3.2% annually, down from a June 2022 peak of 9.1%. Meanwhile, employers keep hiring and the unemployment rate has held below 4% for nearly two years. And that wraps up the front page section of the register. We'll wrap up our shift with this short article from USA Today. After explosions, SpaceX will try again to launch its mega rocket into orbit. This is from Cape Canaveral, Florida. SpaceX is aiming for another test flight of its mega rocket on Friday after getting final approval from federal regulators. The first launch of Starship ended in an explosion minutes after lifting off from the South Texas uh, location in April. The Federal Aviation Administration issued its license Wednesday, noting that SpaceX had met safety, environmental, and other requirements to launch again. Elon Musk's rocket company said it was targeting Friday morning. After the self-destruct system blew up the rocket over the Gulf of Mexico, SpaceX made dozens of improvements to the nearly 400-foot rocket and to the launch pad, which ended up with a larger crater beneath it. SpaceX has a $3 billion NASA contract to land astronauts on the lunar surface as early as 2025 using the spacecraft. A month ago, the FAA completed its safety review of the upcoming Starship launch. It needed more time to wrap up its environmental review. No one was injured in the first attempt, but the pad was heavily damaged as the rocket's 33 main engines ignited at liftoff. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service later reported that concrete chunks, steel sheets, and other objects were hurled thousands of feet, hundreds of meters, from the pad. It also said a plume of pulverized concrete sent materials several miles away. Wildlife and environmental groups sued the FAA over what they considered to be the FAA's failure to fully consider the environmental impacts of the Starship program near Boca Chica Beach. Plans call for the test flight to last one and one-half hours and fall short of a full orbit of Earth. The spacecraft would go eastward, passing over the Atlantic, Indian, and Pacific Oceans before ditching near Hawaii. Nothing of value will be on board. So for the past 90 minutes, your readers have been Linda Lundgren and me, Twyla Glenn. It has been our pleasure to read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
your new readers are Teresa Whitaker and Dorothy Hockenberg. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register Opinion section. Here is Dorothy with our next article. Our first opinion today is a Your Turn guest columnist from Dan Gelbach, and he is a state representative serving Iowa's 46th House District, including Grimes and portions of Dallas County, and is a small business owner in the Des Moines area. The title of his article is Trump Bashing Reynolds Helps No One, Including Him. With only about 60 days now until our first-in-the-nation presidential caucus, there are dwindling opportunities for Iowa voters to hear the Republican candidates' plans to get our country back on track. Voters want to hear how the candidates are going to secure our southern border, rein in Washington spending, and tackle the scourge of rising crime that has gotten out of control under President Joe Biden's failed leadership. Fortunately, voters are hearing solutions from most of the Republican presidential candidates, except for one. Former President Donald Trump has spent his few visits here firing shots at Governor Kim Reynolds because she has declined to endorse him and instead has chosen to endorse Florida Governor Ron Santis. Instead of telling Iowans how he's going to solve the biggest problems facing our country, Trump has focused on personal vendettas and attacking our governor. What he doesn't realize that each shot at Reynolds is really a shot in his own foot. When likely Republicans caucus goers were asked in July by public opinion strategies about Trump's attacks on Reynolds, nearly four in five respondents disapproved of them. They don't want to hear him air his personal grievances. Sadly, that's all he seems to care about, and it could cost him here in the general election. Just look at the last major race here in Iowa. Reynolds won her re-election last year in a landslide, significantly outperforming Trump's general election margin here in 2020, because she focused on the issues voters care about, and she won 95 out of 99 counties in the process. She maintains a strong approval rating among Iowa Republicans because she continues to focus on conservative policies, not personal politics. Trump might know that if he spent more time here. Instead, Trump has largely skipped most of the marquee Iowa State Fair events where voters expect to see the candidates. In the meantime, other candidates, including DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, are constantly showing up and talking directly with voters about the strong conservative policies they care about. Granted, we make significant conservative strides as a country during former Trump's term. We made long overdue progress in securing the border, establishing a more conservative Supreme Court, and making great achievements in energy independence. But instead of talking up those accomplishments and explaining how he's going to build on them, Trump is still more concerned with going after our governor 
and when it comes to electability here, those distractions are going to hurt him. Going into 2024, Republicans need a strong nominee who can beat Biden. We need a nominee who is focused on securing our border, bringing down gas prices and inflation, and reining in Democrats' wasteful spending. We can't afford four more years of Biden, and we can't afford to nominate a Republican who is distracted with personal attacks against members of their own party. Unfortunately, the former president doesn't recognize that reality. It's time for Iowa voters to see that. This time around, Donald Trump is not focused on making America great again. He's only focused on himself. That's not going to help us take back the White House. Okay, we have another guest columnist. Um, your turn. It's Ben Carson. And he is a neurosurgeon, was the 17th secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Our economy is being devoured by inflation. Our border is being overrun. Our cities are rife with crime. Our children are being indoctrinated in school. Our government is being weaponized against its people. Israel is under attack, and our country is being laughed at on the world stage. We have very serious problems confronting our country right now, and they require courage and bold leadership. We need a president who will always stand strong, who will tell it like it is, and who will put our country first. For this reason, and so many more, I'm endorsing Donald J. Trump for president, and I encourage all my friends in Iowa to caucus for him on January 15th. Trump's first term saw a great renewal of the American spirit and the traditional values that made our country the greatest on earth. He ended federal taxpayer funding for abortion providers. He affirmed and defended the conscious rights of religious Americans, fought back against critical race theory, radical gender theory, and other toxic left-wing ideologies in our government and schools, and championed a positive, inspiring, and unifying understanding of American history and identity. Trump named nearly 300 conservative judges to the federal bench, including three Supreme Court justices, dedicated to interpreting our Constitution as written. Most consequentially, Justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett were pivotal votes in overturning Roe v. Wade last year. Under Trump, we also had a strong economy, a secure border, no new foreign wars, and peace breaking out in the Middle East for the first time in decades. Less than three years after Trump left office, our country and the world are in serious trouble. After Trump held Russia's Vladimir Putin in check for four years, Russia launched an assault on Ukraine just over a year into Biden's presidency. Joe Biden's appeasement of Iran paved the way for Hamas's horrific attack on Israel, the most savage murder of Jews since the Holocaust. China is ascendant, and the American military is suffering a decline in recruitment and morale. We've lost sight of who we are as a country to the point where we now celebrate the murder of the unborn as empowering and perform gruesome surgeries on kids to affirm misguided beliefs about gender. In school, kids are taught to hate their country, not love it, and our country's greatest heroes are slandered as racist and sexist. As bad, things, as bad as things are, I still believe America's best days are yet to come, especially if we return Donald Trump to the White House. When I was secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, I got to see the real President Trump, not the caricature created by the liberal media. He listened intently whenever I spoke and often asked for my input. 
He was thoughtful and reflective, but also tough and uncompromising on his core principles. He always put the best interests of the country first, not personal preference or partisan ideology. Most tellingly of all, Trump was never afraid to ask for my prayers as he led our country through the highs and lows, prayers which I was always ready to offer for him and still do to this day. To the rest of the 2024 Republican primary candidates, here is my message. With the future of the country at stake, individual aspirations must be put on hold. It's clear that Trump still has the overwhelming support and confidence of the party, and it's time to rally around him. When I see how hard the left is weaponizing the legal system to try and destroy Trump, I see how terrified they are of running against him in 2024, which is one more reason why he must be our nominee. Fifty-nine years ago, in October of 1964, a rising star within the Republican Party named Ronald Reagan declared that Americans had a rendezvous with destiny. He warned that the choice facing the country was to preserve our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or will sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Part of the reason I entered politics in the first place is because I am a father and a grandfather, and I am deeply concerned about the country I will be leaving to them. Our era's rendezvous with destiny is here, and Donald J. Trump is the man to lead us out of the darkness and into the light. And again, that was from Ben Carson. Turn now to letters to the editor. Our first one is from Thomas Johnson of Ankeny. Make the Catholic Church pay taxes. When the Catholic campaign in Ohio about an abortion ballot measure, the Catholic Church should lose its tax-exempt status. It has overstepped its boundaries. With the, with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court definitely made abortion a political issue. This is being demonstrated by the primary candidates and parties this year. Democrats appear to be very clear that this is a woman's choice. Republicans appear to be against abortion, but their candidates are having difficulty stating a position. Maybe because they feel by doing so, they will lose votes both in the primaries and the national election. The federal government says that religious organizations are tax-exempt if they are not politically active. That means they don't spend money outside the church to influence political issues. The Catholic Church spent over a million dollars publicly campaigning against this issue in Ohio. The Church was publicly politically active and should lose their 503c3 tax-exempt status. If organizations that violate the limits of being tax-exempt were fully taxed, maybe all our personal taxes would be reduced, or the nation's debt reduced again from Thomas Johnson of Ankeny. This next letter is from Stephen Whitaker of Altoona. Exposure for Big Four women's hoops was poor. The scheduling of the four in-state Division I women's basketball teams at two on NFL Sunday is absurd. First of all, they are playing at the same time. To get the least viewers possible, the games are on ESPN+. These games should be standalone games in the evening on a network readily available to all Iowa Hoops fans. The Packers and Vikings are playing games at the same time. It is impossible to watch them all. 
that from Stephen Whitaker of Altoona. The next is from Levon Anderson of Des Moines. Show us the marching bands. I watched entire football game when Iowa Hawkeyes beat Rutgers Scarlet Knights 22-0. Neither team played with much excitement or gave their fans reason to cheer. The game is perfect example of why TV stations should always show halftimes and the marching bands. That way, everybody would be entertained. Let's hear it for the bands. That's from LaVon Anderson of Des Moines. This last letter is from Mike Delaney of Windsor Heights. Root column upheld Register's finest traditions. Thanks to Lee Rood and the Des Moines Register for continuing local reporting. I will continue to buy the Des Moines Register no matter the cost. I like to hold the newspaper while I drink my coffee each morning. Saturdays are a bummer. I agree. The public is crying for the truth about anything. More than ever, we are bombarded in every way possible by misleading advertisements. Political campaign material is only for those who are not paying attention to what candidates actually do. The Iowa Senate has, struck, has stuck reporters in the gallery in the Iowa Capitol so they can't hear. They are kept in the dark, just like the general public. Democracy is difficult to maintain. All through history, power tends to concentrate in the hands of a few. Since the Supreme Court granted the power to buy our politicians, it is necessary for the public to know what the big boys are doing and why. Whether it is a Coke, a Rastetter, a Gross, or a Soros pulling the strings in the only hope the public has in reporters like Woodward, Bernstein, Maddow, Wallace, Cullen, Bellin, and Rood. As long as the Register upholds its famous tradition of telling the truth as in the story, why dark money in the mayor race stirs anger, I will continue to subscribe. That from Mike Delaney of Windsor Heights. Okay, we're going to turn to the sports section now. And I'm going to start with the sports on TV today, November 16th. Again, these are Eastern time, so please convert these. Uh, we're going to start with college basketball men's at um, 7 p.m. tonight on ACCN. We have Texas Southern at Virginia. On BTN, we have Wright State at Indiana. At 9 p.m. on BTN, we have Missouri at Minnesota. For college basketball women's at 6.30 p.m. on FS1, Maryland is at UConn. At 7 p.m. on SECN, we have Clemson at South Carolina. At 8.30 p.m. on FS1, we have Kansas State at Iowa. For college football, at 7 p.m. on ESPN, Boston College is at Pittsburgh. NBA basketball, at 7.30 p.m. on NBA TV, we have Brooklyn at Miami. 10 p.m. on NBA TV, we have Oklahoma City at Golden State. NFL football tonight at 8.15 p.m. on Prime Video is Cincinnati at Baltimore. And finally, on NHL Hockey at 2 p.m. on NHLN, there's a global series, Detroit versus Ottawa in Stockholm, Sweden. 
And uh, at 8 p.m. on ESPN Plus and Hulu, we have Tampa Bay at Chicago. Okay, we have an article, The Register's Preseason Super 10 Rankings. This is high, I, excuse me, this is high school girls basketball by Alyssa Hurdle. Last season for the second straight year, an Iowa high school girls basketball team put together an undefeated record in Class 5A and won the state championship. Two years ago, it was Johnston that went 26-0 and and claimed the state title. Last season, Pleasant Valley accomplished the same feat. The individual talent statewide is higher than ever, and there are some teams with stacked rosters in 2023-24. Here are the top 10 teams in Iowa ahead of the season's first games on Friday. We have Johnston at number one. Their 2022-23 record was 24-2. The Dragons made it all the way to the Class 5A championship game where they finished as runners-up. Expect Johnston to top its game this season with a roster of returning contributors, including Ali Tanki, Jenica Lewis, and Ailia Riley. Add in Amani Jenkins, who transferred in from Des Moines North, and on paper, the Dragons have all the pieces. At number two, we've got Dowling Catholic, whose 2022-23 record was 20-5. and Ava Zedeker averaged nearly 20 points per game as a sophomore, and Ellie Muller had about 7.5 rebounds per game as a freshman. The Maroons had some other young players who stepped up last season. A little more experience could be the missing piece that Dowling needs to go further this year. At number three, Ankeny Centennial, whose 22-23 record was 18-7. Centennial made it to the state semifinals where the Jaguars held their own with then-reigning champion Johnston. Jaden Pratt and Maya Crawford are both back, and they should take on an even larger role for the Jaguars this season. Number four, we've got Pleasant Valley, whose record in the 22-23 season was 26-0. Sharpshooting Hallie Weiss graduated, but that doesn't mean the reigning Class 5A state champions are out of the conversation. Regan Pagniano averaged nearly 13 points per game as a sophomore. Jesse Clemens made more than 54% of her field goal attempts, and Quinn Weiss is poised to pick up where her sister left off. And number five, we have Davenport North, whose 2022-23 record is 21 and was 21 and three. The Wildcats roster boasts two of the top girls basketball players in the country, and it seems like Journey Houston and Divine Barrage have spent the offseason improving their games even more. Davenport North was a young team that qualified for the state quarterfinals in 2023. With more experience, the Wildcats will be a problem for opponents this season. At number six, we have, six, we have Dyke New Hartford, whose 22-23 record was 26-1. It's wild to think that the Peterson sisters will play volleyball in college because they are so good at basketball. Peyton Peterson led the Wolverines with 16.5 points and 10.6 rebounds per game, and Jaden Peterson shot 57.3% from the field while averaging close to the same number as her sister. Number seven, we have West Moines Valley, whose 22-23 record was 15-9. Even with Elise Jager back for her senior season, the Tigers are kind of a question mark. But Valley was in the same situation last year, with lots of unknowns playing against the toughest competition in the state, and the Tigers fared just fine. Number eight, we have Cedar Falls, whose 22-23 record was 15-7. Grace Knutson helped Cedar Falls to 15 wins with 21 points and 6 rebounds per game. The Tigers returned several other key pieces from last 
year, and if Knutson continues to produce like one of the best players in the state, Cedar Falls will certainly be competitive. At number nine, we have Waukee, whose 22-23 record was 11-12. Kirsten Hawk, Sophia Hope, and Emily Sorensen were a couple of juniors and a sophomore who found ways to compete against some of the Metro's best teams. With more experience from the past season under their belts, expect Waukee to have a winning record and then some this season. At number 10, we have Clear Creek Amana, whose 22-23 record was 18-5. Clear Creek Amana is one of the smaller schools on this list, but based on who the Clippers return, it's clear that they are one of the Iowa's top teams. Ava Locklear has all the attributes of an on-court leader, and Avery Lower could be a player to watch after a big freshman season. Okay, we turn now to Dear Abby. Man strives to put mother's lies behind him. Dear Abby, I was born 40 years ago and raised by my mother to believe that her husband was my birth father. She divorced him and raised me while receiving court-awarded child support based on her insistence to all involved that she had not had an affair. As the years went on, it became increasingly evident this wasn't true. So I took a genetic test. The result came back with a 99% likelihood that I had a different father. I soon made contact with the brother of the man I believed to be my birth father. He had personal knowledge of the affair and did a confirmational genetic test to show his genetic relationship to me. My mother continues to insist on what is now certainly a lie perhaps to save face with me and others, and to avoid perjury charges and support repayments that might follow. I have not had contact with her for many years and changed my last name to my biological father's. He was a loving father figure to me in secret and is now deceased. My problem is I cannot find closure for all my mother's countless lies and denials. She gaslighted me into feeling I was deranged while she cultivated a popular public face as a reporter and patron of the arts in our small town. I want to be able to reconcile with my past so I can be a better father to my own kids and be able to trust my loved ones fully. I feel weak as a person and I don't want to pass that on to my kids. Please advise. This is from True Self in Canada. Abby says, Dear True Self, You are not a weak man. You are an intelligent person who was fed a pack of lies for decades. Yet you managed to get to the truth in spite of that. Your mother has lied because she is afraid she will lose standing in the community. And she is probably right about that. It would benefit you to discuss your family history with a licensed mental health professional. If you do, it will help to sort out all this out more quickly than if you try to work through it on your own. The next letter is Dear Abby, I am torn between my and my husband's desire to move and my obligation to my family. We decided to explore moving out of state because of the climate. Where we currently live is very dry and hot in the summer and wildfires often cause smoky skies for weeks. We can hardly go outside in the summer. 
My widowed mother lives close by and knows how much we struggle in the summer, but she's in her 60s and healthy. She doesn't need to be taken care of yet. Now that we've chosen a place to move a few states away, she has convinced my grandmother, who lives out of state and recently went into independent living, to move close to all of us. I'm torn between moving somewhere I feel my quality of life would improve and staying close to my grandmother, who I've never lived near before. How do I make this decision? From Making a Decision in Colorado. Abby says, Dear Making a Decision, Decide rationally. If you opt to make the move, which would be understandable, discuss it with your mother. Although her health is strong now, she and your grandmother may be open to the idea of relocating to your new city so you can all be together. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Teresa Whitaker, and my partner at the microphone has been Dorothy Hockenberg. Earlier you heard Linda Lundgren and Twyla Glenn. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.